I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, that wonderful passage of encouragement of resurrection hope in the Lord Jesus at His return. Before we come to read God's Word and hear it preached, would you bow with me in prayer? Father, as we come to read these words of comfort, that the dead in Christ will rise and we will all be changed to be glorified with Jesus Christ at His return, and so always be with Him, would you take this Word and cause it to have its effect of hardening those who, who reject it, but also bringing your elect to faith in the coming Savior, that they would long for His return and long to see His face and so be with Him. And would you use this word to comfort your, your children, especially those who have lost loved ones in the Lord, that we would grieve not as those who have no hope, but as having the only hope of the resurrection power of Christ Jesus, which is ours by faith in Him. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we come to read God's Word, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of history should be a great encouragement for the believer, indeed the greatest encouragement. On that day, Christ will appear publicly. We will see Him in His beauty and in His glory. We will see His scars in His glorified body, in His hands and feet, which He received on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. He will take us to the place He said He would prepare for us, His kingdom of glory. On that day, our sin and suffering will be brought to an end. And as the confession of faith says, we will receive fullness of joy and refreshing in God's presence forever and ever. Believers will enjoy all this and more when Christ returns at the end of history. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you trust in Him alone for eternal life, you would agree that it would be a great tragedy to miss this glorious event. 
Really, could there be anything worse for a believer than to miss, to miss out on the return of Jesus Christ? There's nothing that the believer should look forward to more than his return, to the, to the return of the Savior, and the possibility of not witnessing it would be indeed a great tragedy. And you may wonder, why even ask that question? Why even ask the question of, of missing out on the return of Christ? Well, because that seems to be the concern of the Thessalonians at this point. That seems to be what Paul is addressing here, that the Thessalonian believers thought that their brothers and sisters in Christ who had died were going to miss out on the return of Christ because they had died. They thought that believers who died would not enjoy the benefit of seeing the Savior come in glory. The Thessalonians probably thought it was as if children were at home and they were eagerly waiting for the return of their father to be reunited with him after a long absence from him. And then for some reason, one of those children is taken away. And that now that child is not going to be able to see his father return. He would miss out on the glory and the joy of being reunited with his father while the rest of his siblings enjoy dad's return. So the Thessalonians probably thought something along those lines, that believers who died before Christ's return would miss out on his return. That seems to be the issue that Paul is addressing here. And the Thessalonians needed more instruction on, on Christ's return and all the things attendant with that event. And we've seen throughout the epistle that, that Paul has instructed them on the return of Christ, really in every chapter of the epistle. So they probably knew about it when Paul was with them in Thessalonica, but they didn't understand how the return of Christ fit with the resurrection, how those two events fit together. They may have said to Timothy when when Timothy visited them and then took word back to Paul when he was in Athens, well, we know about the return of Christ, but how do believers who have died fit into that plan? Are they at a disadvantage because they have died? Do, do believers who have died miss out on the return of Christ? And Paul seems to be dealing with, with that concern here. And the main point that Paul wants to drive home for us in, in this passage is that all believers, living or dead, will come to share in resurrection hope. All believers, living or dead, will come to share in resurrection hope. And Paul drives this point home by answering at least five questions in this passage. First question he answers is this, how should we, how should we respond to the death of a believer? The answer he provides in verse 13, that you are to grieve but with hope. Look, look there again at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And that is, is the balance he wants the Thessalonians, he wants us to strike, is to grieve at the death of a believer, but to grieve with hope. And there's no indication in Scripture that we should not grieve the death of a believer at all. That would be a stoic emptying of our emotions, and there's, there's no call in Scripture to that. There's no indication in Scripture that we should not grieve the death of a, of a believer at all. You think, to cite one example of John 11, when Lazarus dies, Jesus weeps. 
Jesus weeps even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He still is grieved at the death of a believer. Because death is an intruder in God's good creation. Death exists because Adam broke covenant with God in the Garden of Eden. He was the, the first covenant head of the human race, and his actions influence us all to this day by bringing death into God's good creation. Death is part of God's curse on his good creation. So, at least for these reasons, we should grieve, we should mourn the death of a believer. And really, only the believer knows this. Only the believer knows how horrible death is, the separation, the unnatural separation of body and soul, which was never God's design. And our, our culture, and, and, and many cultures, completely reinterprets death. Our, our culture says that death is normal. It's just the way it is. Death is a part of life. Nothing can be done about it. We might as well embrace it. We might as well live, eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's nothing we can do about death. So our culture doesn't recognize how horrible it is, that it is an intruder. And for the unbeliever, the one who does not know Christ, there is only hopeless grief. Not the kind of grief we read of here. There is only hopeless grief. Nothing can undo death. There's nothing, there's nothing we can do about it. There's no use in making a big deal about it. That's just the way it is. But for the believer, the, the one mourning the death of the one who trusts in Christ, mourning the death of a believer, there is the opposite. There is hopeful grief. We'll, we'll pause to, to answer the question of what that is in a minute. But this leads us to the second question that Paul answers. Second question is, well, how can we respond this way? How can we respond with hopeful grief? Isn't that just wishful thinking, to have hope in the face of death, the face of death of, an un, of a believer? How is it, res, is it possible to respond in this way instead of in hopelessness? And Paul gives the answer to that question in verse 14. Because Jesus died and rose again. That's why we can have hopeful grief instead of hopeless grief. Look there again at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So point here being that death does not separate the believer from Christ. Puritan Matthew Henry puts it this way, speaking of believers who die. He says, being still in union with Christ, they sleep in his arms and are under his special care and protection. So death does not separate the believer from Christ, it just brings the believer in a new relationship to Christ. As terrible as death is, as unnatural as it is, as much as it needs to be removed from God's good creation, God has changed the experience of death for the believer. The believer does not go into God's judgment he goes into, into glory. The soul of the believer is made perfect in holiness and goes to be with Christ, as our shorter catechism puts it. But that's only the soul of the believer. What about the believer's body? Well, that, that is under God's care as well. The body of the believer lies in the grave, still in union with Christ Jesus, and it awaits the resurrection. Paul emphasizes this elsewhere in Romans 14 about the inseparability 
of the believer from Christ. Romans 14, verse 8 and following. He says, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So you see that death cannot separate the believer from Christ. And if that were the whole of the matter, we could praise God for it. But Paul gets more specific here. Here in, in verse 14, Paul's not talking about the present state of believers who die, of being with Christ in heaven while their bodies lie in the grave awaiting the resurrection. Paul's not talking about the intermediate state. He's talking about the future. Paul's talking about the resurrection from the dead, which is a greater state than heaven, the greater state of believers who, are, who have died to be with Christ in heaven. Paul's talking about the resurrection of the body. And we can ask ourselves, well, how, how do we know that believers will be raised from the dead when Christ returns? And the basic answer is that the, the proof that believers are going to be raised from the dead is Christ's own resurrection. That is proof of our own resurrection, the resurrection of believers who die. So this is Paul's logic here, if, even if in seed form. His logic here is believers are united to Jesus Christ, Jesus died and rose again, therefore, believers will rise again. They're united to Jesus Christ, he died and rose again, therefore, we will rise again. That shows the, the tight-knit relationship of Christ with all those who trust him. It is because Jesus died and rose again that we will, will rise again from the dead, because Jesus died and rose from the dead, all who die in him will rise from the dead. And that is why, that is at least partly why, we can grieve with hope when a believer dies. Christ's resurrection is, is the guarantee that all who die in him will be raised. The resurrection of the believer is guaranteed because Christ has already been raised from the dead. So Paul is, is moving in his argument to answer these, these various questions of why we can grieve with hope when a believer dies. So this leads us to the third question he answers. So what will happen when Christ returns? That's a, it's an enormous question to answer, and he provides it in verses 15 and, and 16, that among other things, when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise. And this, this really gets at the heart of the concern of the Thessalonians that they may have had at this point, the concern that, Thessala that, that the believers who died would miss out on Christ's return, that they would miss out on the glory of that event. Maybe the Thessalonians believed that, that believers who died would eventually be raised from the dead, but they would, they would do so after Christ's return. So they didn't know how, how the return of Christ fit with the resurrection of believers. And Paul, Paul is instructing them on this here. And Paul's point is that they do fit together. The resurrection of believers and Christ's return, they're all part of one glorious event, among other things. They happen simultaneously. The resurrection will happen when Christ returns. Really, you can't have one without the other. They both happen in one glorious event. And then Paul unpacks the, the many things that will happen at, at Christ's return. Look there at, at verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, 
with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So these many things will, will take place when Christ returns. He will descend from heaven. That is to say that Christ himself will come down to earth. He himself will come to earth from heaven. He doesn't send someone on his behalf. He doesn't send an ambassador. He descends from heaven himself. There will be a cry of command. That this, is, this is one word, cry of command. Christ will shout this, this word of command. This is a, a military word, a word uttered by an authority that must be obeyed. So this paints the picture of Christ being that, that military authority. He will shout a word and bring those who have died in him out of the grave and into resurrection life. He will shout that, that cry of command. And this again should remind us of Jesus commanding Lazarus to come forth from the grave when, when Christ was here in his earthly ministry. And Lazarus did as he was told. He, he rose from the dead when Jesus told him to. But there's a huge difference between what Jesus did in his earthly ministry with Lazarus and this cry of command he will, he will shout when he returns. The big difference is this. Lazarus died again. Lazarus is in the grave still. It was a, it was a vivification. Lazarus came to life as an example of Christ's le- resurrection power. But when Christ returns at the end of the age, he will utter this cry of command, and we will all be raised from the dead permanently. Not temporarily as Lazarus was, but permanently when Christ issues this cry of command. All believers who have died will be raised from the dead permanently when Christ issues this word. And then there will be the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. This is a reference to the the loudness, the, the public nature of Christ's return, that it is a loud public announcement of the arrival of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The heavenly hosts announcing that the King of glory has arrived and the one who has defeated death has come. So all this, all this and more will take place when Christ returns at the end of the age. But what, when, what does this have to do with the resurrection of believers? When does the resurrection of believers take place in this scheme? We see there in, at the end of verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. So this gets at quite a few things. There's, there's a lot in, in this little statement that the, the dead in Christ will rise first. At least it says that believers who die, die in Christ. The believer's union with Christ is not severed even in death. That bond is indissoluble. Not even the wrongful separation of body and soul can separate the believer from Christ. Not even death, the last enemy. The believer, the whole believer, body and soul, is united to Jesus Christ even in death. No matter how much decay the body of the believer will see in the grave, no matter how much decay and corruption it will go under, we are still united to Christ, even though we turn completely to dust. That body will be raised when Christ returns. Well, as you can imagine, this this idea, this idea of the resurrection of the dead would be mocked in the early centuries of of the church after Christ. Uh, ministered in his, in his earthly ministry, 
There was a, a pagan philosopher in the third century A.D. named Porphyry who, who made a case, he thought, that, that disproved the resurrection of the body, he, and he made this case against it. He says, suppose that there's a man who is, who is shipwrecked, and he, he falls to the bottom of the ocean, and a fish eats his body, and then that fish is caught and is cooked and eaten by fishermen. Then those fishermen are killed and eaten by dogs. And then those dogs die, and vultures eat them. So how can the body of the shipwrecked man, originally, be reassembled in the resurrection if it went through all those other bodies, eaten by fish, then fishermen, then dogs, then vultures? Well, as, as great as that may sound to the, to the unbelieving mind, it does not take into account the omnipotence of God that God is able to reassemble the the dead body of the believer in one glorious act of resurrection power. No matter how much decay the body experiences in the grave, God will raise it from the dead. Notice that Paul says in verse 16 that the dead in Christ will rise first. This might have been surprising for the Thessalonians to have read. Remember, the, the Thessalonians are concerned for believers who die that the believers who die in, in their congregation would miss out on the, on the glory and the joy of Christ's return because they were dead. But Paul is taking that concern, and he's turning it on its head. He's saying not only will dead believers not miss out on Christ's return, they get a front row seat to it. Do you see what he's doing there? Believers who die have the advantage over those who are alive when Christ returns. Not only do they have no disadvantage, they have the upper hand. They have a front row seat to that glorious event. They receive resurrection bodies first. Believers who die participate in the glory of Christ's return first. Maybe the Thessalonians who originally read this had a, had a holy jealousy. We're so, we were so concerned for the believers who died, now we're jealous of them. They get to enjoy the, the resurrection first. Well, this gets to the fourth question that Paul answers. So we've seen that at the return of Christ, the dead in Christ will rise first. Fourth question is, but what about us? What about those who are alive when Christ returns? And the answer Paul provides in verse 17, we will go with them to glory. Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This passage, among others, has been used to speak of a secret rapture toward the end of history when there will be believers being snatched away before Christ returns. That is absolutely not at all what Paul is, is speaking of here. That is not the, the witness of the New Testament, that there will be a secret rapture or snatching away of believers at the end. Because all of these things happen together. There's not a, a piecemeal presentation of things that happen at the end of history. All of them happen together. Christ returns, the dead are raised, and believers who are alive receive glorified bodies and, and the judgment and, and resurrection. All, all these things happen together, the coming into the new heavens and new earth as well. They all happen together in one glorious event. So what exactly happens to believers who are alive when Christ returns? 
Believers who die are raised from the dead. But what happens to believers? How can you be raised from the dead if you are alive? What happens to believers who are alive when Christ returns? Well, Paul deals with it in verse 17. It's dealt with in seed form. But he deals with that question more fully in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's turn to, to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Thessalonians is probably one of the first, if not the first, letter that Paul wrote. So some of these things that he develops later are dealt with here in seed form. But he deals with this issue of what happens to believers who are alive at Christ's return more fully in 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, start at verse 50. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So you can see the similar themes here and, and throughout 1 Corinthians 15 that we see here in, in, this, in this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. Reference to the, the last trumpet, which we see also in this passage. But th- this is the point I, I want us to appreciate about what happens to believers who are alive when Christ returns. This helps us to see the whole picture. When Christ returns, all believers living or dead, all believers receive glorified bodies. Their bodies are made like Christ's glorified body. But this happens in in different ways. Dead believers receive glorified bodies, how? By resurrection. They're raised from the dead. Living believers, they're in verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, we shall not all sleep, we will not all die, but we shall all be changed. Living believers receive glorified bodies by being changed. Those who are alive at Christ's return receive glorified bodies in a great miraculous event of of a change. Without dying, we receive resurrection bodies. We are raised without having to be raised, if I can put it that way. We receive glorified bodies by being changed. So whether alive or dead when Christ returns, it doesn't matter. God is able to to grant what he wants, whether we're alive or dead. When Christ returns, all believers receive glorified bodies. And so all share in the resurrection hope, whether alive or dead. All will put on immortality. And that's what we see in in seed form in, in this passage, in 1 Thessalonians 4. The dead in Christ rise first. But soon thereafter, and following on their coattails, those who are alive receive glorified bodies. So whether alive or dead, we will receive the glorified body. And then all of us together, all believers, will be with the Lord. So Christ will descend in his glory. He will come down from heaven with the the shout and the cry of command, and he will glorify all his saints, living or dead. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's how he puts it in verse 17. We will always be with the Lord. And that we, 
we will always be with the Lord. That is all believers, living, living or dead presently, we will all be with the Lord when he returns to give us glorified bodies, whether by resurrection or by change. We will all be together in glorified fellowship with Christ. He will come and fit us for glory and, and fellowship with him. He will glorify us so that we will enjoy glorified communion with him on that day. And that really is the best part. That is the best part of Christ's return. It is not the gifts. It is not the things that we get. Whether the new heavens and new earth, the removal of the curse on creation, no more suffering, a glorified body, reunion with believers who have died, whatever else, as good as those things are, they are not the best part of Christ's return. The best part is getting Christ himself, is of seeing his face, finally being in his presence, finally worshiping him in glorified communion for eternity. So as we turn now to think about putting this to work, some points of application, this answers a, a fifth question, a fifth and final question that Paul brings up here. Well, now what do we do? Now what do we do? And the answer he provides in verse 18, very simply, therefore encourage one another with these words. The hope we read of here is summarized in Shorter Catechism 38. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. And this is the reason we can grieve with hope to bring things full circle. This is the reason we grieve with hope, because this is true of believers who have died. It is, it is true of all believers. We will all be glorified. But we do not mourn for believers who have died, because they will not miss out on Christ's return. They will get a front row seat to that glorious event. Death does not disqualify you from sharing in the glory of Christ's return. You don't lose your place in line if you die. You get taken to the front of the line. The dead in Christ are raised first. But notice in, in verse 18 that Paul does not say, be encouraged with these words. He says, encourage one another with these words. It's a big difference. He's not saying that every individual believer should be encouraged by what he has said at this point in the epistle. He says, encourage one another. The, the church is not a collection of independent individuals. It is a body, just as, just as the human body is not a collection of independent parts, the foot and hand and arm and leg just pieced together. It is, a, it is one whole. It is a body. It is one organic whole. Every part is related to every other part because they are parts of one body. So it is with the church. We are not independent, disconnected parts, maybe interacting once in a while. We are parts of one body. And so this encouragement is not just for ourselves. It's not just for individuals. It is for one another. It is meant for sharing. It is meant for encouraging those who do grieve the loss of believing loved ones. Grieving with hope is a project for the entire church to engage in together. It also means that the believer should not fear death 
Death is not something we need to fear any longer. Heidelberg Catechism, question one. Justly famous catechism question and answer. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Whether in life or in death, you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Death cannot sever that bond you have with him by faith. Years ago, I had the pleasure of knowing a, a seasoned old saint when Ellie and I were worshiping at a church in Pennsylvania. This, this woman enjoyed long life and service to the Lord, and as she got older, she spoke of how, how she longed more and more for heaven. And one of the, the things she highlighted about why she wanted to go to heaven was that she wanted to be reunited with, with loved ones. She wanted to be reunited with believers who had died before she did. That she wanted to see this person and that person again. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. But as she got even older, as she got closer to death, as she, as she knew her, her time on earth was, was ending, she continued to speak of her desire to be in heaven. But she didn't talk about wanting to see her relatives. She spoke more about wanting to see Jesus. And she does see Jesus now. That blessed woman is now in the presence of the Lord Jesus, as are all believers who die in the Lord. And to use her as an example further, I I do miss this blessed woman, but we grieve with hope. We know that the vision of Jesus that, that all believers who have died enjoy right now will get better. The vision of Jesus they have now only gets better because the dead in Christ will rise. God never intended for our lives to be disembodied. Heaven is not the the permanent resting place. It is only on the way to the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven is only on the way to the resurrection of the body. All who trust in Christ will shed their mortality and will put on immortality, whether through that glorious change or through resurrection from the dead, and we will all be with the Lord. Well, if you do not know the Lord Jesus, nothing I have said, nothing we have read is true of you. None of it. There will be a resurrection of all men, all who have died on the last day when Christ returns. But if you do not know the Lord Jesus, your resurrection will be unto judgment, and you will be cast in the lake of fire with Satan and all his, his demons when judgment is finished. But if you trust in the one who has already undergone the judgment of God in your place, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, 
If you die, your resurrection will be unto eternal life. Nothing you read of here, nothing I have said is true of you unless you trust in the Lord Jesus alone for your salvation. As the hymn puts it, emphasizing that death cannot sever us from the Lord Jesus, our union with him is indissoluble, and that we should not grieve for believers who have died. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Amen. And may God be pleased to add his blessing to the preaching of his word.